Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. It is Tuesday, June 22nd. I'm Bill Nygut. And because it's Tuesday, we're joined by my partner, uh, Tamar Hallerman, uh, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, thank you for being uh, with us. We have an interesting show. We're going to introduce our special guest in just a minute. But Tamar, for the day, uh, we're going to take a step back from the political headlines of the day and talk about a virus, not COVID, not the coronavirus, but HIV-AIDS. Tamar, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to dive in. I am too. Um, our, our guest today is Sarah Schulman. Sarah Schulman is a prolific writer. She is a writer of nonfiction books, novels. She's written six, seven plays, maybe more than that. You'll correct me, Sarah, if I'm right or wrong about that. And uh, Sarah, you're the author of a new book, Let the Record Show, A Political History of ACT UP, New York, 1987 to 1993. Um, an important look at um, a loose confederation uh, organization, I think it's fair to say, of activists who were determined to call attention and change the trajectory of HIV-AIDS uh, as it really came on the scene and was being largely ignored by much of uh, the society around it. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for being here for the show today. Thank you so much. Let me start, if you don't mind, Sarah, I want to read your words to you, just a, just a short paragraph from your book. Um, you say this, my entire adult life has been surrounded by AIDS, the deaths of those around me and with whom I made my stand, advocating and learning from people with HIV and witnessing and sharing the survival of my closest friends. I have met, stood with, and advocated for people with HIV all over the world as an HIV-negative person and consider myself to be a part of the HIV-AIDS community. So with that, you um, were a journalist who covered much of the developing uh, story about HIV-AIDS, which we first really learned about 40 years ago this month, but you also uh, played an activist role in the organization. Fair way to describe a kind of a dual role Absolutely. you played throughout. Uh... Yes. Okay. So um, start, if you would, by helping our listeners understand, just in the most basic way, what was ACT UP? Well, you know, you have to go back to, uh, we now know that, it, we now know that AIDS existed for, um, <clears throat> Uh, probably a hundred years, and it may have been in the United States in the 1940s, and certainly was in New York in the 60s and 70s. But science didn't notice the pattern until 1981, and that's when you have the famous New York Times story, July 3rd, 1981, 41 cases of rare cancer found among homosexuals in San Francisco. Now, it's important to go back to that, what it was like for homosexuals at that time, Gay sex was illegal. The sodomy laws were still in place. In New York City, there was no gay rights bill, <clears throat> which meant that you could be kicked out of your apartment, you could be fired from your job, 
You could be denied public accommodation like restaurant or hotel. Familial homophobia was virulent and was the status quo, and street violence against gay people was a constant threat. So at the time, there were theories about homosexuality. People felt that homosexuality was one thing and that it was biological. And so when there was a disease that was identified through the gay community, it was conflated with the idea that homosexuality itself was a disease, in fact, a biological disease. And because of the stigma and prejudice, that's why the first name for this disease was gay-related immune deficiency, GRID. Uh, eventually, it became called AIDS. And in the first five years of the epidemic, 40,000 people died in the United States. Uh, ultimately, about 600,000 people have died so far in the United States of AIDS. Uh, in those first five years, the government did nothing. Pharma did nothing but recycle failed cancer drugs, and the mainstream media ignored the crisis. It was only really the underground press, the gay media, uh, with you know almost volunteer and amateur journalists that did the mainstay of the of the coverage. Then um, there was a very big setback for the gay community, which was the Bowers v. Hardwick decision in the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. and this upheld the sodomy laws. So after five years of a mass death experience, to have gay sex be maintained as an illegal category was a horrible setback, and people were enraged. There were demonstrations in the streets without permits. There was a lot of anger. And this was the environment in which ACT UP was created in March of 1987. I really appreciate your setting all that up for us. Tamar, a couple things to unpack there. I want to—I think it's really important first— as we have this conversation, to establish for those people who believe, oh, well, yeah, we remember HIV AIDS. That was a that was a, a, a disease of the past. Thank goodness we've moved beyond that. That isn't true in any way, and especially here in the South and here in Atlanta. Uh, uh, HIV infection among especially African-American men continues to be at very high levels. So we are not talking about history. We're talking about a disease that continues uh, to exist. And by and with, with that, let me also say tomorrow when when uh, Sarah mentions uh, Bowers v. Hardwick, she's talking about uh, Georgia Attorney General Mike Bowers, who went to the Supreme Court to argue that sodomy among consenting adults in privacy was illegal. Yeah, there, this is a Georgia case that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Michael Hardwick was a bartender. Uh, who was cited for drinking in public outside of the bar he worked at in Atlanta in the early 80s. And the police went to his house to serve him his arrest warrant. They entered his house and went into his bedroom where Michael Hardwick was having sex with another man, consensual sex, and he was arrested for breaking the state's sodomy law. Hardwick was the one who, who sued the state attorney general, Michael Bowers, in federal court and made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And as Sarah mentioned, um, you know, the Supreme Court upheld it. And in a very, you know, in a 5-4 decision, closely divided, the, the chief justice wrote that um, here's the quote, I found it. To hold that the act of homosexual sodomy is somehow protected as a fundamental right would be to cast aside a millennia of moral teaching. And yeah, it was a huge galvanizing moment for the, for the movement, including here in Atlanta. And just as you were mentioning, Bill, this is a crisis that hasn't gone away. You mentioned specifically for black men, also transgender women. 
um, you know, people of color here in Georgia and the state, especially the South, but Georgia specifically ranks in the top five of the highest in the country of new HIV cases. So this is something that isn't going away. And a lot of the issues that Sarah said that people in ACT UP were fighting for in the 80s and 90s in New York City, things like a gay bill of rights, things like HIV criminalization laws, um, public accommodation, being able to, you know, restaurants can turn you away. These are protections that don't exist in Georgia to this day. There's still laws on the books here that if you have HIV and you don't disclose your status, if you're having sex or getting a blood transfusion, that could be a felony punishable by decades in prison. So a lot of parallels between what you guys were fighting for in New York and what advocates here in Georgia are still fighting for today. Thank you so much Sarah, for bringing I that want... up. I, oh. I want to say ahead, one Sarah. thing that's really different is that the medications exist. You know, today, uh, anyone who's HIV positive can get medications that would make them virally suppressed so that they couldn't even biologically infect anybody. So that shows us that there's a, a gap in terms of who has access to standard of care and also that these HIV criminalization laws that you bring up are simply punitive. I'm really glad you pointed out, uh, pointed that out, Sarah, because I think one of the things uh, that we've all come to understand as we've watched COVID-19 uh, track its course across the population is disparate outcomes in terms of populations uh, in our communities. I mean, African-Americans, Hispanics, much more likely to get COVID, much more likely to have serious consequences from uh, COVID. And, and the reason being, of course, that there uh, is a huge gap in terms of medical treatment, access to sound health care. Um, and that's one of the similarities uh, between HIV and, um, and COVID, although there are a great many uh, differences. Uh, one of the most important ones, I think, Sarah, being how people who were first uh, diagnosed with AIDS were shunned were treated as if they were lepers and uh, in many cases lost their families, lost friends. It, it was a tragic, tragic situation. Well, I think, you know, whenever there's a cataclysm in this country, it reveals all the fissures of the society and primarily economic inequality and racism. And AIDS did that and coronavirus does that. But one of the big differences is that coronavirus is a public shared experience. It's on television every night. People talk about it at the dinner table. AIDS was our private nightmare. And our fight was to get it into the public. As Vito Russo, one of the leaders of the movement, famously said, it's like there's a war, but no one knows about it but you. Tamara, jump in. Yeah, Sarah, I know that you've been critical of some of the most famous blockbusters in American pop culture that have dealt with the AIDS crisis over the years. I'm thinking of Philadelphia, the play Angels in America, and you talk about kind of the tropes of the bigoted straight white man who kind of becomes the savior of the movement. Can you talk about some of the issues you have with those portrayals and why it's so negative? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I would say that... Um... The, the, the representations of AIDS that have become too big to fail, right, that have become canonical and were so highly rewarded, it's important for us to look at what messages these works have and what they're actually saying. And I'm positing that they are mainstream because of what they were saying. 
And so if let's take the movie Philadelphia, for example. Um, it won an Oscar. And the basic plot was that a gay man needs a lawyer. So he goes to a homophobic black lawyer, in this case, played by Denzel Washington, who then heroically overcomes his prejudices to help the poor, alone gay man. But in real life, he would have gone to a gay lawyer. But the, mm. the conceit of the film is that there is no gay community and that gay mm. people are alone and abandoned. And that's a message that straight people like. And that's why works like that are, were so highly rewarded. Um, if we can, I want to talk about the beginnings of ACT UP in New York um, uh, with you, Sarah. And, um, and I want to talk about why you say your book is not just a historical record, but you see it as a handbook for activists to learn from how ACT UP was able to, in a very short time, take on and, and lead to enormous change in how the country dealt with um, uh, the HIV. Uh, so let's start with the beginnings of ACT UP. 1987, I think, is mm -hmm. the, when it That's really right. got started in, in New York. Um, a group of... Uh, primarily, I think, gay, was it mostly gay men who started yeah. meeting at a uh, at, at a little, just a, a, a little kind of hole in the wall place in the village to deal with, to start talking about what they were dealing with. Have I got that pretty much right? Well, it was a crumbling old school uh, that became the gay center and then the, the lesbian and gay center. Well, let's start with what mm -hmm. ACT UP accomplished, because I really want people to understand how incredibly effective they were. So in the, in, in the six years that I cover in my book, ACT UP they, was part of a movement that forced science to change the way it researched medications. Because AIDS is an umbrella term, like cancer. It actually is different in each person. And what it is is that your immune system deteriorates. And so you develop what's called opportunistic infections like dementia, like blindness, like the inability to process nutrition. And people with AIDS needed treatments for those opportunistic infections. But pharma was recycling failed cancer drugs that they held the patents for because that was looking for a pill that would fix your AIDS because that was the largest market share. And going after treatments for each opportunistic infection was a smaller market share. So they had to be forced to shift the perspective. ACT UP forced the Food and Drug Administration to make experimental drugs available to people who needed them, even if they hadn't gone through the full approval process. ACT UP ran a four-year campaign to force the CDC to change its definition of AIDS so that infected women could qualify for benefits and for experimental drug trials. ACT UP founded Housing Works, which started programs for homeless people with AIDS. ACT UP made people with AIDS eligible for private insurance, and this impacted hundreds of thousands of people. ACT UP stopped the church from impeding, the Catholic Church, from impeding condom distribution in the public schools. And ACT UP made needle exchange legal in New York City. And it really changed the way that queer people and people with AIDS saw ourselves and the ways that we were depicted in the media. So these are enormous accomplishments. Sarah, what was so interesting about ACT UP is how decentralized its organization was. You didn't really have kind of designated leaders or spokespeople. You kind of worked through a coordinating committee and then all of these different 
caucuses and affinity groups. Why do you think that was such a strength for the organization? And at the same time, do you think there were any downsides to, to it being so decentralized? Um, the, the strength was that ACT UP had to be effective because its major constituency was people with AIDS, and they were in a state of emergency and had no time. So their needs had to be met. And therefore, there could not be a kind of bureaucratic time-wasting or too much time-wasting on theory. So ACTIP had a, a structure of radical democracy where there was a one-line statement of unity, direct action to end the AIDS crisis. And that's direct action as opposed to social service provision. So if you were proposing something that was direct action to end the AIDS crisis, basically you could do it. And that was because it was not a consensus-based movement. People did not have to agree. So if you had an idea and I didn't like it, I would argue with you because this was pre-gentrification New York culture where people were very direct and things were on the table. But ultimately, if I didn't agree with you, I just simply wouldn't do it. I wouldn't try to stop you from doing it. And then I would find like-minded people to do the project that I wanted to do. So in this structure, ACT UP ended up with an enormously broad simultaneity of response, where they were running so many campaigns at the same time and so many different social sectors and so many different milieux, that this really is what created the paradigm shift. Were there any downsides I, I to that, though? A moment where somebody might have gone too far or taken away from what the organization wanted to accomplish? Any moments like that? Um, there were a lot of times that people went too far. Um, you know, it was a very human movement. It was not based in respectability politics. And People were dealing with a lot of pain and suffering and a lot of pressure. And so there was there were all kinds of crazy things that went on. You know, somebody stole $10,000. One guy pretended he was positive when he wasn't. Two people OD'd and died. You know, there was a lot of that. But the organization could hold that because it did not have a supremacy ideology about itself. It was a community, and a community cannot have a closed door. Um, one of the things that's fascinating about your book, by the way, before we go any further, I want to say, tell people a little bit more about your, your project, because yes, you have this wonderful book, which uh, includes uh, conversations with almost 200 people who had involvement uh, in ACT UP in one form or another, people who you've reached out to. But you also have an oral history project. You have interviews that people can access for free online. You filmed with a, a, a film pro, a partner uh, these interviews. So this has been an enormous undertaking, which you started back in 2003. And, and we want to make sure people realize <laughs> this isn't a book you dashed off in the last two years. No, no, no. I mean, I started covering AIDS in the early 80s. Then I was a member of ACT UP. And then I continued doing journalism on the relationship between AIDS and gentrification and HIV criminalization. 1996 is when the protease inhibitors came in, the good drugs, that, so that if you're infected, you can live a full lifespan. And 1999 was really the Internet revolution, and everything went online. ACT UP had been pre-Internet. So this, all our material was not digitized, and there was a period where you could search ACT UP and you would find nothing. In 2001, I was driving, and it was the 20th anniversary of noticing the pattern that became AIDS. And I was listening to the radio, and the guy said, at first, America had trouble with people with AIDS, but then they came around. And I almost crashed the car. I thought, oh, no, 
This is going to be one of these fake progress, benevolent, dominant culture stories, when the truth is that thousands of people fought until the day they died to force this country to change against its will. So my collaborator, Jim Hubbard, and I started the ACT UP Oral History Project. And people can access it at actuporalhistory.org. In fact, we've had 14 million hits. Uh, so for the next 18 years, we interviewed 187 people and put the full transcripts up on the, on the web in the hopes that somebody else would uh, analyze this raw data. But what started to happen was a fake story about ACT UP started to emerge that focused on a handful of in individuals when ACT UP really was about collectivity and community and um, coalition. And so not only was this information wrong, it also gave contemporary activists the wrong impression. You know, in America, we love John Wayne, and we love this idea of the individual white male hero who's going to come in and save everything. But actually, in real life, nothing works that way. You really need a zeitgeist of cooperation for there to be a large social change. Um, so what, what I want to talk about for a minute is um, something that happened with ACT UP that has become kind of a buzzword of today and, and really uh, worth exploring in terms of how ACT UP uh, uh, worked with so many disparate groups of uh, people. Intersectionality. We're all talking now about intersectionality and why it is important. Um, on the show the other day, uh, Professor Andre Gillespie actually defined it uh, uh, for us and um, made clear that one of the elements of intersectionality is this notion that you can't just talk about uh, all women and a solution to the problems that all women have. You have to break that down. You have to look at what African-American women, what Hispanic women, what gay women, all that. And in many ways, ACT UP was an example of that kind of intersectionality. I think it's fair to say, Sarah, because you point out that people came to act up with entire from social movements that were completely disparate from what gay men were dealing with. Yes. Well, act up was predominantly a white gay male organization, and I'm not saying anything different than that. But it was not an exclusively white gay male organization, and its influences were much broader. So the it tended that the old older gay men had come from the gay liberation movement. But the younger white gay men often did not have any political experience, whereas women and some of the people of color in ACT UP had enormous amount of political experience, having come from pre-existing movements like the feminist women's health movement, reproductive rights. Uh, there were people who had been associated with the Black Panthers, with CORE, and they brought in very concrete political ideas and, and ways of thinking politically that were very helpful. But also, generationally, most of us were born in the 50s and 60s, some in the 40s. And when we were queer children, which was a concept that didn't exist at the time, we didn't know that there was going to be a queer community or there was going to be a gay movement when we were older. But we saw black resistance on television. We saw black people standing up to the police. We saw black people doing direct action, like sitting in at segregated lunch counters. Um, and when I was researching the book, I went back and looked at Martin Luther King's a letter from Birmingham jail where he lays out his definition of direct action. And actually it is exactly what ACT UP did, even though we didn't realize it at the time. So clearly, generationally, we had internalized the lessons of black resistance. 
Yeah, I'd like to talk about, I mean, was there any emphasis at all kind of on theory or, or let's take this thing that worked so well during civil rights, you know, you talk about direct action, civil disobedience, which you absolutely did in a lot of your um, your zaps and your demonstrations. But at the same time, there were things that, that were really core tenets of civil rights early on, things like respectability politics, which you mentioned was not as much of a focus of, of the organization. Um, ACT UP was not, did not talk about theory and it did not theorize itself. Uh, so no, one of the leaders of ACT UP, Maxine Wolf, who had been in core actually, she, she argued that if you go action first, your theory will emerge because you have to make decisions. And when you make decisions, you have to find out what your values are and your values will cohere. And that this turns out to be a much more effective way to go forward. Because if you put theory first, you end up getting polarized and arguing about things that don't have any material application. So there was very little theory in ACT UP. Yeah, I, I would love um, to ask you about, oh, sorry, Bill. No, that's right. Tomorrow, let me do this. Before you ask another question, let me get our first break of the show out of the way very quickly so we can come back and talk more with Sarah Schulman. This is Political Rewind. The AJC's Tamar Hellerman and I are talking today to Sarah Schulman, the author of Let the Record Show a Pol Political History of ACT UP New York, 1987 to 19. 93, a look at how a, a, a group of people uh, who, were, who came up with creative and confrontational ways to force the country, government agencies um, and others, to pay attention to a crisis that was killing uh, uh, people. Uh, as you say, Sarah, if I can, I want to read one other a piece from your book, from the very beginning of your book, because it's so powerful. This is the story of a despised group of people with no rights, facing a terminal disease for which there were no treatments, abandoned by their families, government, and society. They joined together and forced our country to change against its will, permanently impacting future movements of people with AIDS throughout the world and saving incalculable numbers of future lives. And your book... Uh, includes interviews with almost 200 people who were part of ACT UP. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating history. Tamara, I know you wanted to jump in. Sure. I wanted to continue the conversation we were having before the break about kind of the, the influences of ACT UP and specifically the civil rights movement. Obviously, Atlanta, huge for us. And, you know, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the death of John Lewis, a hometown civil rights hero. And he talked a lot about the importance, especially the early days of the lunch counter sit-ins, about appearing respectable, especially in the eyes of this white public that was so scared of black people. You know, always dressing up, never punching back, that sort of thing. And Sarah, you talked about how respectability politics was not a priority of ACT UP in those early days. Uh, talk a little bit more about that and, and why that was not a priority. Actually, it was the opposite. It was no business as usual. Um, you know, ACT UP opposed institutions as diverse as pharmaceutical companies, the government, the art world, the New York Times. Uh, you know, they, they really, if you, you had to give up, in a sense, any kind of ambition or idea that you were going to work at the New York Times if you're opposing the New York Times. But it's because people were dying and the clock was ticking. And when that happens, you, you 
you go through a personal transformation, a kind of spiritual transformation. Dr. King called it self-purification. In ACT UP, it was uh, called nonviolent civil disobedience training. But where you, you stand outside of the power apparatus. And a lot of that was possible because gay people were so outside. And I, I would love to ask you a little bit more about ZAPs. I had not mm -hmm. heard that term before uh, going through your mm -hmm. book and, and kind of these big attention grabbing events designed to get media attention to, to force big institutions to change. Some of the most famous that, that ACT UP did was your demonstration at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, uh, put draping a giant con. I think we just lost uh, your audio, Tamara. We're going to try to reestablish your audio uh, and get you back in the conversation. Uh, but, Sarah, please go ahead. There were some outrageous demonstrations that we do want to talk about. And as I said, there was great creativity uh, shown by a lot of the people who were part of ACT UP. So why don't you pick up where Tamara started, and we'll get well, her one audio of our, back. Sure. One of our first really important demonstrations was against the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, they were not researching the drugs that should have been researched, and they were not making drugs that people needed available. And one of the leaders of ACT UP, David Barr, had this really brilliant idea. You know, in, the, in, the, in those days, people used to constantly go to Washington and constantly demonstrate in front of the White House and the Capitol, the White House and the Capitol. And these were symbolic objects. But David realized that we needed to stop going to symbolic objects and go to the real institutions that were actually obstructing us. And so he proposed going to this funky suburb of Maryland to confront the Food and Drug Administration. Now, at this point, so Act Up New York was the first Act Up chapter, but other chapters started to be created. And so that gave Act Up the opportunity to have its first national demonstration. And David Barr and Greg Bordowitz and Deborah Levine and Robert Vasquez went to California and met with other ACT UP chapters and decided that people were going to collectively converge on the FDA. So we had large numbers of people, but ACT UP also had an alternative structure, which were affinity groups. These were groups of 15 to 20 people who would meet separately in someone's home, and they could do organized theatrical and also illegal actions without getting the support of the floor, even though they did get legal support. So at the FDA, there were lots of theatrical actions, um, and the people who were working in the building did not have business as usual that day. But we also introduced ACT UP's media strategy at that event. So Mike Signorelli and Ann Northrup and Irvishy Vad came up with this idea that um, people with AIDS had come from all over the country and local newspaper reporters had come from all over the country. And so our media people connected like the Houston paper with a person with AIDS from Houston, the Minneapolis paper with a person with AIDS from Minneapolis. And so the next day, the story was on the front page of all these local papers with the local angle. And that was really the first time that people with AIDS were heard nationally. And, and, and then and, the, and that, the FDA did give in, and we developed Parallel Track, which was designed by Jim Igo in the ACT UP Treatment and Data Committee, and uh, drugs were made available. 
which, by the way, continues to this day. And we've seen it at, at work in, again, COVID-19. FDA now saying, yes, drugs that have not been fully sanctioned can be used under certain circumstances to treat people who are in desperate need with these more experimental drugs, right? Right. But there's a downside, right, which is that it enables uh, pharma to get drugs approved that maybe yeah. don't even work, like this recent Alzheimer's <laughs> drug, right? Yeah, okay, good point. Yeah, that's a great point. I want to uh, pick up on one other example of an, a big, big action that ha- happens to have involved a uh, man from Atlanta. You, you write about the Ashes action, October 5th, 1992. Uh, David Robinson, a New Yorker, uh, was in love with Warren Krauss, who lived here in Atlanta, uh, Warren Krauss uh, 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 died. David came to Atlanta, became his full-time caregiver. And and when Warren Krauss died, uh, David wanted to figure out, I think, and you'll tell the story better than I can, but essentially, how do I honor his life? How do I, how do I call attention to the way, the reasons he died? And he came up with this really brilliant scheme to do something with Warren Krauss's uh, ashes. Talk about that. Well, by that time, ACT UP was, had gone through a, a devastating split where 12 people left and started Treatment Action Group. And this was very demoralizing to the organization. Also, there had not been any new drugs coming down the pipeline that really worked. A lot of people were dying. The leadership, or people were constantly dying. ACT UP was in a place of real desperation. And um, David Robinson had this idea of people bringing the ashes of their loved ones who had died of AIDS to the White House lawn. And in fact, that is what ACT UP did. So there was a demonstration. People marched to the White House gate, which you could do at that time, and literally poured the ashes of their loved ones onto the lawn of the White House. That's how desperate people were. You know, at the beginning of ACT UP, People used to do what was called a die-in, which was symbolic. They would lie in the street and they would hold up cardboard uh, graves and this sort of thing. But by the end of this period that I cover, the the, uh, bodies were literal. There were political funerals. Three people from one affinity group all died within 10 weeks of each other. And each one of them wanted a political funeral. Their bodies were carried through the streets. They had open caskets in the park. Uh, ACT UP was so desperate that they wanted the public to see the bodies of people who died of AIDS. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tamar has been talking about uh, some of the local or Georgia connections uh, to ACT UP. And I want to share one more that Amelia Brock uh, uh, knows about from her work on uh, on On Second Thought, the uh, show that uh, uh, was on our air for so long. Um you say in the book, Sarah, that um, ACT UP is a story of a group, a story of fluidity of leadership, but then you say of ordinary people rising to the occasion. So several years ago, a, a, a story appeared first in the Atlanta newspapers and then got national attention. A mailman named Floyd Martin in Marietta, who'd been on the, on the basically that same route up there for almost 35 years, he was beloved by the people who he delivered mail to. And they got together and raised money, 30-some thousand dollars, to send him on a trip to Hawaii to give him a big party, a big send-off. People magazine picked it up. But it was only when he came to do a show with On Second Thought 
that Floyd Martin revealed that he had become involved with ACT UP because he had seen so much tragedy around him among gay men. Let's listen to just a little bit of what Floyd Martin told uh, Virginia Prescott in that show on On Second Thought. Back in the, in the late 80s, I started losing friends, mm. one after the other, and that was due to the AIDS crisis. And uh, I lost a partner, and then uh, I met another friend. We became partners. He invited me to go to an ACT-UP meeting. I didn't know what ACT-UP was. Yeah, can you remind us of what it stands for? Uh, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the first ever grassroots activist group dedicated to changing the course of the epidemic mm-hmm. by any means necessary. Yeah. So it was yeah. a it was a it was a very in your face group yes, at that it was, time because there was nothing being done mm-hmm. and people were dying. So instead of people infected with the disease just waiting to die, they decided to rise up and fight for their lives. And I was part of that fight. You know, because of ACT UP, a lot of people are alive today because of medications that were released. Yeah, there was uh, nobody really advocating for them. No, no, they time. wouldn't even say the word, mm-hmm. you know, and people with AIDS were very much discriminated against. Everybody was afraid of them. We didn't have any knowledge. You know, we didn't know anything about it. We didn't even know how you got AIDS. Yeah. We did a lot of great things that is making it a livable chronic disease now. And for a lot of people listening, uh, that's a brand new story and a very moving one. You've heard hundreds of stories like that from people like Floyd right. Martin who dedicated themselves to this movement. It's a very sophisticated rank and file. You know, one of the things about ACT UP was that everybody was a spokesperson. There were no designated spokespeople. So there were many, many teach-ins where the vast majority of people were sophisticated to the laws, to the policies, to the medications. And when I interviewed people, they were very, very clear about why they were there and what they were working on. It's an extraordinary group of people. Yeah, and Sarah, one of the things I wanted to ask you about that that ACT UP was kind of new to doing at the time was kind of elevating the people who had AIDS and kind of using them and their experiences to help kind of guide um, your actions, what you did, how you talked about things. And that was sort of novel, right? Well, the idea of patient-centered politics had been something that came from the feminist women's health movement. Because, you know, medicine was always hostile towards women. And so when there began to be a feminist health movement, people had to center women's experiences. And a number of people from that movement came to ACT UP, like Marion Bonsoff and a number of Risa Denenberg, a number of people. And they did teach-ins on this concept. And every person that you interviewed would say, people with AIDS are the experts. This was the mantra of ACT UP. So, for example... One of the standard things in an experimental trial would be that they would contrast the drug they were testing against the placebo. So when you came in, you didn't know if you were getting the medicine or if you were getting sugar. Well, from a scientist's point of view, that may be what you want because you want clean data. But if you're a person with AIDS, you don't want the placebo. So ACTIF would oppose that type of double-blind study. And what they wanted instead was that the drug be compared to the standard of care treatment. 
And that's an example of looking something at something from the point of view of people with AIDS. And I'd love to ask you a little bit about the reception that you got from the scientific community. And I know that, you know, I'd like to specifically talk about Anthony Fauci, uh, because so many AIDS activists have a very complicated relationship with him. But initially, it sounds like he was reluctant to take that kind of patient-centered approach to all of this. Yes, it's, you know, I, I handed in my manuscript before COVID, and so it was before the second coming of Anthony Fauci. So he really wasn't in the front of my mind as I was writing the book. But I did see, notice as I was reading through that there were a number of examples of active people telling stories of presenting innovative ideas to Fauci and him saying no. So, for example, Richard Elevich, who was the leader of the needle exchange group, he had gone to Fauci and said, how come you're not enrolling IV drug users in experimental drug trials? And Fauci said, well, they're not compliant. And Richard said, well, you can't write off an entire class of people. Or Linda Meredith, who was an activist for women with HIV. It took them two years to get a meeting with Fauci. Or Jim Igo, who designed Parallel Track, he sent Fauci a letter proposing Parallel Track, and Fauci didn't answer him. And Jim had to chase him down at a public event. So he was reluctant to go with innovations. And he really had to be forced. Um, ACT UP did major action at the NIH. And there was a lot of direct action aimed at Fauci. Uh, and it was interesting because after Jim and I started the Act Up Oral History Project, we were invited by the NIH to come present our materials. This is so many years later. So we walked through those gates. It was a very strange feeling. And we presented our materials. And this woman raised her hand and said, uh, I was the librarian when you guys demonstrated. And after you left, I went out and collected all the signs that were left behind. And this ephemera is in our collection. And we're all so proud that Dr. Fauci realized that people with AIDS needed a seat at the table. And we were just stunned. We were like, no, no, no. He was forced to change his position. You know, this is a conceit. Dominant culture always claims that they just naturally evolved to a more progressive position. But as Dr. King pointed out and many other people, nobody gives up power voluntarily and people have to demand their rights. Well, and that leads me, we got to get to a break, but that leads me to, I said earlier that uh, you consider your book not just a history of ACT UP, but in, in many ways a, a guide for how people can get can truly engage in activist activities to make change. And I want to talk a little bit about that when we come back. You're listening to Political Rewind. As I said at the top of the show, we're taking a step back from the political headlines of the day to talk with uh, Sarah Schulman, author of Let the Record Show, A P Political History of Act Up New York. 1987-1993. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter from the AJC, is with me for that. We're back to politics uh, tomorrow. Eric Tannenblatt, Howard Franklin, Andre Gillespie, Greg Bluestein will all be here. And among other things, we're going to talk about the Catholic archbishops in the United States who are moving to try to deny uh, communion to President Biden because he is pro-choice. It's a fascinating conversation. It's sort of a corollary to the show we did last Friday uh, about uh, the uh, Southern Baptist Convention and the deep, deep conservative movement that is tearing uh, that uh, denomination apart. Um, so, all right, uh, Sarah, 
Uh, let's go to this notion of your book being, in many ways, a handbook, a guidebook for activists and how to get things done. Um, you've sort of given examples of that, but tell us, what do you hope the main takeaway is? That if I want to get actively involved in a cause, as so many young people are now with Black Lives Matter and other things, what's the main takeaway or the several main takeaways from what ACT UP did that you think they can learn? Well, I think that the overall lesson is that how to organize a campaign. So you become the expert on your issue. You design the solution. You take your reasonable, winnable, and doable solution and present it to the powers that be. When they reject it, you do what Dr. King called self-purification or act of called nonviolent civil disobedience training, and you organize a theatrical and powerful uh, direct action that will communicate through the media to the public what your issues are, what your solution is, and the fact that these institutions are not responding. And that's how Mm -hmm. you create public pressure. Tamar? Um, I'm curious what you make of some of the the large activist movements of today's today and, and kind of their strategies. Are there any that you think are, are kind of doing justice to the movement or are you kind of frustrated with the state of, of kind of what you're seeing specifically with young people? I'm very excited by the movements that are growing today. And I think we're in the beginning of a very large people's movement. I mean, the, you know, some of our most important movements, the movement against police violence, the movement for black lives, the movement for immigration reform, uh, the movement for Palestine solidarity. These are exciting movements that are growing and also that our strength, their strength is local. They're different in each city and they're different in each municipality. And they're coming up with concrete strategies that are relevant to where they live. I'm curious how you think social media has helped or hurt the activists of today. I I do think at least it feels on the outside looking in that there is this emphasis on kind of ideological purity to your cause. And you talk with ACT UP how you weren't really able to afford to throw people out of your movement because so many people were dying and it was so urgent. And so many people did things you didn't like, but you didn't boot them out of your movement. Well, of course, COVID has forced people uh, to not meet in person, but meeting in person and being in person was a very strong part of ACT UP creativity, because people were talking all the time. They lived together. They worked together. They had care groups. uh, They were in prison together. And the experiences and needs of people with AIDS became very evident because people spent time together, and they were able to come up with really great ideas. Because the thing about movements is that ideas are products of group relationships, It's the collectivity that produces the creativity. And when we can get back together in person, that'll be really helpful. On the other hand, every generation has their own technology. Like in ACT UP, uh, video camcorders had just been invented. Mm -hmm. And so ACT UP learned how to, well, ACT UP invented video activism. You know, and now we have a different technological society and each generation uh, because system institutions and individuals act on and transform each other. It's never a static relationship. Um, Sarah, as we start to run toward the end of the show, um, I, I mentioned, of course, at the very beginning that anybody who 
has the uh, misguided belief that somehow HIV-AIDS is behind us. It couldn't be more wrong. And, and here, uh, certainly in metro Atlanta, we know it's a continuing uh, issue, especially among black men. Um, in general, though, with uh, protease inhibitors and the drugs that now can uh, uh, stop people from having the most severe consequences of AIDS, um, what is the need for activism in the HIV-AIDS community? How has it changed, transformed? Is it more about education today than it is about getting governments and institutions to change? Well, you know, uh, AIDS activists, in a sense, were able to overcome HIV, but they could not beat capitalism. And so even though the mm. medications now exist, <clears throat> the profit motive for global pharma is the obstacle. So, you know, Linda Villarosa, who is a black lesbian reporter for the New York Times, she did a cover story showing that, this is in 2017, black gay men in the U.S. South had higher rates of HIV uh, infection than any country in the world. And that's because we don't have a logical and coherent healthcare system. And not only do we need a national healthcare system, we need a global, a globally coordinated healthcare system. Because what we're seeing with COVID is the exact same pattern. Now we have a vaccine, but the wealthy countries hoard it, poor countries can't get it, and we need equitable distribution. And in Georgia, you know, that's actually, certainly... Uh, Oh, sorry. No, in Georgia, I say, you know, a lot of the LGBT activists I talk to are huge, um, you know, very much in favor of expanding Medicaid here in Georgia, which is something we haven't done yet. And they, they often talk about uh, about that as well. Yeah, I was going to point out, uh, Sarah, that some time ago uh, I did a show with AIDS Atlanta. When you talk about the prevalence of AIDS among uh, African-Americans in the South, uh, in specific zip codes, in parts of Atlanta, you had higher rates of infection than people had seen in other parts of the world where uh, through stereotypical or prejudicial notions, they thought, oh, well, in Africa, there must be more prevalent. But it was no, it was specific zip codes in Atlanta. So this is a disease that still needs to be reckoned with, Sarah. Well, so we have so much income inequality and so much racism in the United States. Uh, in New York City, two years ago, 1,400 people died of AIDS, and they were mostly diagnosed in the emergency room because they had no health care. Well, um, we're out of time, unfortunately, for uh, this conversation. Uh, Sarah Schulman, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Your new book is Let the Record Show, a, Poli a Political History of Act Up New York, 1987 to 1993. But Sam, I think we should put up on our social media a link to the uh, uh, Act Up Oral History Project where people can read transcripts from like 187 people who Sarah and her partners have interviewed about their experiences in ACT UP. Tamar Hellerman, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you again in a week, but I'll be back again tomorrow with another Political Rewind. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy. I know you're not sure when you have to wear a mask and when you don't, but you know what? If you're fully vaccinated, you have a lot more freedom to make choices about that. So go get a vaccine. See you all tomorrow.